On this episode of A Beat Happening, we welcome a DJ and label owner who has been working hard to share, champion and promote music over the past 20 years via radio, via his label, Eglo Recordings and within the PR system. A deft selector anchored in a love of hip-hop and soul, as outspoken as he is generous. Welcome, Alexander Nutt. Thanks for having me. Thanks for that complimentary intro, man. You're welcome. So, I guess maybe we can do this one in a sort of historical order. I know about your history, but maybe for those who don't, um, could you give us a quick rundown of your origins and how you ended up involved in this music thing? I guess to try and keep it short is that that's just been, this has been me for as long as I can remember. Since I was a kid, obsessed with, you know, not just music, but I was into skating, graffiti, um, artwork, comic books, movies, do you know what I mean? The whole, the whole thing that comes with sort of being obsessive about music and culture and art from every, every angle. And I have been for as long as I can remember, you know, from, from sort of being a baby, picking out my, my parents' records and stuff like that. Do you remember what records were in the crates, the family crates? Absolutely. I've, I've still got a lot of those records. So my folks, okay, if we get into it then, so my folks listen to like just the standard stuff that people who were young in the 70s and early 80s listened to from everything going from like Curtis Mayfield, Sly Stone, The Beatles, Sade, um, what else they listen to? They listen to Roxy music, you know, a good, a good mix that I think at the time they weren't particularly, you know, specialist or heavy record buyers. That was just like the norm for I think people of their age to be listening to those records. And fortunately, you know, all of those artists and a lot of those records are sort of game changers. Do you know what I mean? Just top, top tier incredible music so i had that around and then i've got two older brothers as well and my oldest brother he's like 10 years older than me he was rock heavy metal and this is like 80s so sort of iron maiden uh uh, black sabbath metallica you know all all that stuff and then my middle brother i'm the youngest but the, the, the middle brother who's five years older, he was the one who really got into sort of skating and the whole culture that comes with skating. So then I'm listening to, you know, Beasties and Tribal Quest and Ice-T and stuff like that, you know. Were you exposed to a lot of music through the skate videos? Because that's how I found out about a lot of music was through skate videos. 100%. I I can't imagine I would even probably be a DJ if it wasn't for skate videos. So many people I think have of, of our age group have that experience. That was part of like even, you know, what sort of types of skate videos or skate companies you sort of subscribe to, do you know what I mean? Like I knew like Girl, Chocolate, Plan B, you know, at the time, Real, um well, Eastern Exposure, Zoo York, you know, all that stuff was just Man, like, that Zoo York the mixtapes video is still amazing there's New York one big shot on the east coast 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 
guess that was a form of DJing at the time as well. I don't actually know who was putting. I know, I know, I know the riders had a lot of say in some of the tracks, but I know some of them didn't. It was like people from the top giving them tracks to go the the parts. I always but thought that I just, always thought the rider got to pick for their part. I don't think I've, I've heard stories over the years, like certain riders going, "Ah, oh, I was bummed that they put that tune on my track on my section wow. because I wanted this track." Um, probably not the ones we think of that are our favourites. I'm sure they did come from those, you know, whoever, Gino, Mike Carroll, whoever it was, you know what I mean, picking dope music. I always love the contrast of, because I remember hearing, the first time I heard Coltrane was probably through Mark Gonzalez going, when he was like laying down the board, going down the streets in San Francisco. I think it was a real video, yeah. Yeah. And even Portishead, you know, it was like a slow motion part, someone's doing some sort of trick. And just seeing, hearing that music to a slowed down version, you know, of something that I was really into at the time was just mind blowing. Just the contrast of, or even if it was Earth, Wind and Fire, like just the contrast of skating with music. It was was a beautiful combination. You know, all the little skits, it was literally like like an album, like a Daylight album Mm -hmm. or something. You know, you got Spike Jones doing, you know, quirky little skits in the videos and it just all seeps in. Yeah, Mouse was crazy. Mouse was amazing. When, yeah. when Mouse came out, I lived in Los Feliz, and Los Feliz, I think it was junior high, was right there. So you would see Eric Costin, uh, Paulo Diaz, like daily. I, I would oh. even see Fat Lip walking up and down the street during that. It was right after, um, right after um, Farside broke up, and he was doing What Up Fat yeah. Lip, and I would see, like, my corner was... Uh, it was crazy back in the day. Uh, Zach De La Roca used to uh, read poetry at this uh, spot called the Onyx Cafe. He would do spoken words. It was a real crazy corner back in the day. Now it's completely changed. But I had a homie in high school. He was passing out Rage tapes early, like two to three months before it came out. So we were up on Rage in my high school because of this random dude um, super early. Um, to just see to see to see those people at that moment in time in front of you, and I'm watching their video. You know, it's a, yeah. and they're legendary to me, and they're my age. You know, which is kind of mm-hmm. crazy uh, to look up to people your age. You know, so for those who don't know who are listening, Alex, you're from the Wolverhampton area originally, right? Yeah, I'm from Wolverhampton, so that's another part of the story as well. Is like, you know, it's a very particular place. So it's in the West Midlands. It's next to Birmingham. Small town. It is a city, but you know, it's a small town, really. So yeah, that's that's where I started out doing stuff. And in terms of like, there's not a hell of a lot from there. Goldie's from there, so that was always one massive sort of you know source of inspiration and influence. Uh, we always had a really good reggae scene, like proper like roots reggae scene from you know way way back. I started out playing on radio on Skyline FM, which is like one of the first pirate radio stations ever to exist in the UK, and it's just you know. Uh, for the West Indian community and, you know, amazing reggae radio station from back in early 70s. I mean, I remember talking to you about this and then even, you know, doing more learning and research and, like, um, the publisher that put my book out, the first book that they did was the story of um, of Bleep Techno. Mm-hmm. And that book kind of goes deep into the wealth and the importance of like sound system culture as a very large umbrella term. Do you know what I mean? But I always got this impression that in the Midlands, that was what was really vibing. That, that was going on simultaneously as you had like a lot of, you know, rock and metal bands. So, you know, I wasn't part, part of that generation, but, you know, later learned that like, uh, 
I think it's is it like nuclear assault from uh, Birmingham, I think. And then even I heard that story that it's Lars, right? The drummer from Metallica. No, not the drummer. Yeah, the drummer, Lars, yeah? From Metallica. Yeah, drummer, yep. He discovered metal and rock music because he was a tennis player and he came to play tennis in Wolverhampton and he went out that night to a pub and ended up seeing some bands and that's what turned him on to rock and metal music. So we, we had that, like, that was really strong, you know, a lot of goths there and then, yeah, big West Indian community and, you know, great, great reggae history, great sound system history. And then the hip-hop thing, which like you mentioned Goldie and that's kind of what Goldie came up through, right? The, yeah. the graffiti that's, scene that's, of uh, the 80s. That's as I'm, I mean, I'm, I'm much younger than him, but, that's what I was privy to. Yeah. Right, right. Yeah, yeah, totally. And going to see my granddad and driving through Heathstown and seeing, like, literally, you know, pieces of his about, as, you know, this is eight or nine years old, you know what I mean? That's wild. Um, so then eventually you make it down to London. And I guess the funny thing here, I mentioned this to Justin, but, like, you ended up at the same university as me. You started just after I left, and I think we did the same course as well because you did communication studies, right? You know what? I completely forgot about that. Yeah, part. yeah. You told me when when I interviewed you for the book, you told me that story, and because I left in '02, and when did you start? I think '03. I think I moved to London in 2003. So you ended up in London, and again, maybe for context, like you know, what 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 brought you to London, but also like what was it like to arrive in London at that period, which is like the early 2000s. Yeah, in all honesty, I had no intention of moving to London. It's just I was seeing a girl at the time and, you know, not really a lot going on in Wolverhampton. And then she ended up going to a university in London. So then I spent a few months back in Wolves like, hmm, life kind of sucks right now. There's nothing going on. So then I was like, yeah, I'm going to come up to London and live with you. And then that's how I ended up moving to London, basically. I wanted to know, in Wolverhampton, so Pirate Radio was your main source of hearing underground music with the, with the raves? Um, because I know there's a lot of nice raves in the, in the fields out there. And yeah, shit. I didn't. There used to be a lot of tunnel parties and stuff, but I was too young for a lot of that ah. kind of thing. That was all like legend and folklore that I had after. But yeah, big, big uh, Pirate Radio, you know, uh, culture. Certainly when I was like a teenager, you could definitely be hearing a lot of everything. Garage, drum and bass, reggae, dance or, you know. What were the record stores like? Was it like mom and pop stores or did they have new releases behind the wall where you can find, you know, dubs and white labels and stuff? Before I ever started DJing and just, you know, sort of bought records as a child, there was, um, you had like Our Price, which is obviously kind of the chain store. And then you had um, Ruby Red's record, which was like black music record record store. And then you had uh, Summit, a few doors down, which was all just uh, dancehall and reggae. And then there's a shop called Aldi's, which is a secondhand record store. And that's probably the shop that I spent the most amount of time throughout my time in Wolverhampton is this place called Aldi's. Yeah, just, you know, proper dusty secondhand shop. And these are on the same block? No, they're sort of spread out around around the town. Yeah. Okay. But now, like all that all that remains from those shops is oldies, and that's always been the one consistent thing. Like, so by the time I started DJing, a lot of those stores started to close down. But also, you were saying, I mean, just for Justin, because I think there's always that thing of of the perception of cities from the US to Europe, like Wolverhampton, in terms of walking around the city city center itself, it's well, like half hour. Not even, not even, yeah. 
these records are these stores are spread out, but you could feasibly walk from one to the other in a day. You like, could skate skate from store to you store. You do the lot in like an hour, really. Yeah. Right. So you move to London. You're DJing. You get into uni. For you, what's the next big step after all this? It's the early 2000s, move to London. What's the next big thing that happened that puts you in the path to so, where you're what, What's crazy is when I was in Wolves, I guess this, this around sort of 17, I started I start DJing around like 16, 17. And, um, you know, I was a little bit active with um, some, some of the graffiti scene and I was putting on a couple nights. I think by the time I was like, 18 I, I had a few nights and there was a legendary club night legendary for me anyway I used to go to when I was you know 15 which was a uh, stump juice in a basement and it was run by some guys called the Kapira twins and they regularly had guests there like uh, Mushroom through uh, Mushroom from Massive Attack um, Daddy G Ashley Beadle um, Queen Bee from Bristol like, a lot of those people was, was, was playing there so I was really into that. That was like my favourite shit to go to. And then w- when that stopped, there was another night called Raw, which was in a really cool club as well. Like both these clubs were pretty cool spots, you know, pretty raw places. Um, and then they eventually closed down. And then it felt like the whole town was shutting down. Like even now when you go there, it's like half the town's kind of pretty much boarded up. So when I started doing stuff, it was when everything was kind of stopping. Um yeah, so I was trying to do stuff there and then kind of gave up on it. Uh, and that's when I was like, yeah, I'll move, I'll move to London. Um, didn't know what to do. I sort of, was, you know, went to visit my girlfriend at the time a few times. I was like, shit, how am I going to live here? Do you know what I mean? How am I going to stay afloat? And I thought just maybe get a job or something. But then actually, you know, I am a, an artist. I have sort of a history in art. Um, I had a portfolio of work and stuff. So... I was like, I might as well just get on a fine art course, which I said to myself I would never do, right? I never had the intention of ever being on a fine art course, right? Well, basically, I got onto a fine art course, but I didn't study fine art. I managed to change because I took a portfolio of art down and got accepted into this uh, university. And then because I didn't want to do a fine art course, on the actual enrollment day, I was just like looking through the, the, you know, the, um, the course guide, like, shit, what can I do, man? I'm not really really down with just doing a fine art course i want to learn about something that i don't know about or something so you know signed up for all these different modules and sort of chased signatures around the building like oh yeah i want it like i did a printmaking course did loads of those like sound and the body things and then media studies things and just kind of like blagged my way through it for the whole time i was there like my 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 qualification doesn't have a title at all because i just made up the units the the the, the, you know, the numbers from all these different units across all these different sort of course titles. I kind of just studied the stuff that I was interested in, really. Um, and that, that, that was East London, you know, 2003. And that, that's the time when, like, you know, grime's really popping off as well. So especially at East London Uni, you know what I mean? There was a lot of, there was a lot of people about. I was living in East London. So that was exciting, like the, the sort of grind and dubstep thing had really started. And co- of course, Code Nine's a lecturer at this university as well. And, you know, there were some pretty dope courses at that uni. Not saying that necessarily that what I was studying, I wasn't, hadn't already been studying myself independently, do you know what I mean, leading to that point. So it's just really exciting to be in a, you know, an institution where you're like, oh shit, you, you, 
you do these things at uni, yeah, you research these kind of topics and these writers will, you know, studying all sorts of stuff. It's great. Did you um did you take that course that Jeremy Gilbert taught, the popular music course? I think there was like a third year course. I definitely did some of Jeremy Gilbert's ones, but I don't know if I did the popular music. Maybe it was a second year, but it was actually, I just want to mention this because it just reminded me, and he started a podcast actually with Tim Lawrence. Tim Lawrence was also, that's the thing right they were both, yeah, both of those guys were lecturers at this uni, and I guess for listeners, to give it some context, he wrote that last night at DJ Save My Life book, right? Uh, no, he wrote um, Love Is The Message. Hi, just interrupting for a second to say that Tim Lawrence's book is actually called Love Saves the Day, and it's excellent. You should check it out. And he is currently hosting a podcast with Jeremy Gilbert called Love Is The Message, which is also partly inspired by the book. Anyways, back to our chat with Alex now. Which is the history of disco music throughout the 70s leading to, it literally ends when house and everything starts, basically. So that's Tim Lawrence. Jeremy Gilbert is like uh, a lecturer in music that was kind of really active in the academia. And then Code 9, as uh, Steve Goodman, had moved from, I forget where, it was like also in the Midlands, and started teaching at UEL in 03. Yeah. And then there was Jessica. Jessica, that's what I was going to say. She was dope. I did like loads of sort of stuff, uh, Sun Ra and... That's right. Yeah, um, she was my tutor as well. She was great. She just she did. Uh, she just did a festival in Berlin that was like streamed. Um, it was about sound systems. It was wow. streamed on YouTube, and she curated the whole festival and hosted it. Yeah, it was. So they're still uh -huh. about. I mean, yeah, I wanted to ask you because actually that Jeremy Gilbert class. That's what changed my whole thing. It was the same as you. Like I, I did a year and I did two years of that course. Failed my second year. Kind of got my shit together, redid my second year, and when I redid my second year, I took this class of Jeremy's, which is about popular music, and I was the same thing. It's like I didn't know that you could study music, like in that way. In that yeah. way, yeah. I ended up there basically, you know, sort of coincidentally. Like I said, I I went there on a whim, trying to get onto a fine art course, and then ended up switching it to a whole bunch of other stuff, and yeah, discovering some really cool units and interesting lecturers and stuff. Is that, is that how you end up working for Zonked? How does that nah, happen? Okay. Nah. So yeah, again, for context, I ended up working at this PR company in London, which I already knew about from back home because when I used to buy a lot of the records, the music I was playing on radio at the time, which was no, predominantly hip hop, you know, I did, I did throw a little bit of reggae in there or some dance halls and bashment stuff, but predominantly hip hop. And when I was going to second-hand record stores, mostly the ones in Birmingham as well, the records that I was buying, that I was playing, all these promos had this sheet in there with, you know, the reaction sheet that used to get with re promo records. So I was always like, damn, this company is really good. Like, all the shit I'm playing on radio has got these re reaction sheets in there. Um, so when that was it, when, before I think I even tried to get into uni, I, yeah, before I'd even tried to get into the union in uh, London, I'd contacted Zonk to try and get some work there, and it didn't happen. So, yeah, you know, ended up moving there, and then over the years, I think, kept hit hitting Zonk to up to ask for a job, never really got anything. Eventually started, I went through a period maybe after two years at uni, I started going, ah, oh, you can do, you know, internships and, you know, volunteering and stuff like that. So I started to sort of, getting involved in things that I was interested in. Had been doing some work at Fabric prior to that. I was doing some, I did a few months working at Fabric during the summer. 
Um, and yeah, then ended up doing an internship at Zonks, which was, uh, yeah, I think, I think I was like sleeping on a friend's floor, you know, not getting paid. I was there for like three months, but I got all three records and that <laughs> kind of got me through. You know. What year was that? Do you remember? I'm trying to think, man. I guess it must be like 2007, something like that, 2006, 2007. And I ended up working there for a few years. So while I was there, the type of projects that we were working on, I should probably put some context to it, is like we were doing everything from Roots Maneuver, Wiley, Amy Winehouse, um, all sorts, man, Diller stuff. We did loads of Stones Throw things and a lot of like electronic music as well, DFA. Um, they did some jungle and German. They did some German bass as well, didn't they? They yeah. would. Um... This is the thing. They did everything, but the coolest shit wasn't while I was working there. Because when I was buying records, you know, that was like when, when I was buying their promos to play on radio. They were doing some amazing stuff. Yeah, I guess by the time I got there, you know, that those underground scenes had kind of it had shifted. More, yeah, yeah. Because I rem- I remember exactly what you say. Like I would see Zonked promos at. Uh, or is it called Record Exchange? Is it Record Exchange mm. in London? Or is that yeah. chain called? It's a uh, uh, music and was it music mu- and vinyl exchange? Yeah, it had like a full name, like music and vinyl exchange, I think. And yeah. they, yeah, exactly like you said, it was like, oh, it's on like PR sheet stapled or like on the front of the twelve inch, and I would always check for those. And uh, they did Ninja as well. They did. did all, they did all the more nin- wax when. Yeah. Um, that's the thing like they were really like I remember you telling me this before like they were really in they, a weird did all the raucous stuff. they were the ones that got those raucous records played on Radio 1 it was Harvey from Zonk that was like he really believed in all this stuff you know he, he, he was he was doing the you know touring these people around everyone from most of Eminem Pharaoh Munch taking them to radio he was the one that really pushed hard at mainstream radio to get a lot of those records on, on Radio 1 and we did, while I was there, we did the same as well, you know. We did, like, um, like Benger and Koki, Night, records like that. Like, really had to push hard to try and get that shit recognised on mainstream radio. Yeah, I remember you telling me that when you were there is when you would be sending records to like Marianne Hobbs and Giles and Benji and people like that, right? Yeah, and did and did all those sort of well, not all those, but a lot of you know, Flying Lotus stuff. Um, well, I was trying to think what else in that world we kind of worked on, but of course that that then after working there that then morphed, you know, as things changed, then I set up my own company, right? After all Young Kings and did and did that for a bit as well. Yeah, so my understanding was that when Zonk shut down, you sort of like set up All Young Kings as a sort of continuation, mm-hmm. so to speak, of, of what Basically, they yeah. championed. Right. Yeah. And I mean, All Young Kings, for those who don't know, again, it's this thing of like, in that late 2000 period of, you know, what we now look back as like the kind of like the, the MySpace, as I like to call it, the MySpace BT, but really this kind of, global scene of, of DJs, producers, promoters. Yeah, all Young King's promos 
to me were definitely the equivalent of like the Zonk promos that I would look at and wish I was on that mailing list. You know what I mean? And I think you definitely did that work. I mean, even Justin was, we were talking about this, you know, even on the other side of the world, it was felt, I think equally. And it's also really important to have, um, promos sent by someone you respect. It's different than just normal PR where you're paying someone to promote your stuff. When it's someone like, ah, you know, when you have heads behind it, it's, you know, it's kind of more meaningful. And you listen to the promos differently. That was always the intention. And that was, you know, part of why I set up for myself was a lot of, I guess it's, it's kind of hard to explain how important some of those things were, you know, sort of 10, 15 years ago, because this is pre like digital music, pre iTunes. Do you know what I mean? That when I set up my company, it was because the whole shift had started and the companies couldn't really adjust from sending out, you know, CDs and having all these physical meetings and, you know, there being a lot of overheads with the music and then the whole sort of system changed and it became digital and people didn't want to adjust and or change their prices or change the way they worked and interacted and stuff. So rather than just doing it as like, you know, I'll take on any job or I'll, you know, potentially do a project I don't really believe in because it's paying the bills. I was a bit like, well, I'm doing, I'm doing other things. Yeah. I'm still doing a little bit of DJing and, you know, a bit, bit of money in my pocket so I can, you know, affords to try and build some kind, some some type of company that you know has real integrity and works shit that is you know only of a certain quality. Actually, that's a really good point. I think again for context and for people who would be younger, Zonk. When we're talking about a, a, a promo company like Zonk, you're talking about late nineties, early two thousands. They're mailing hundreds of records like white label records, then they're also mailing hundreds of CDs. And that really remains like that till about the mid to late 2000s when you start to have MySpace and you start to have the early days of iTunes store. And like you say, that shifts. And it's true that like, what was it, what's interesting is you set up all young kings, but you were doing digital mail outs, you know, select selected, like you have your mailing list of like DJs and people like that, journalists that you know are in line with whatever it is you're promoting, but it's a digital mail out. It's not like, that to me is also, I remember, it's the point, it's like, I'm done accumulating these like promo CDs, these promo everything. It's all straight in the inbox. And people were just taking on any, anything. You were just getting like hell heap of random shit from a lot of companies. And it's just like, oh, I, I don't look forward to opening this envelope anymore or whatever, you know what I mean? For sure. Was this something where you could get was this like you get test pressings, like a curvacea, like SpaceX curvacea test press, like, or was it like the actual twelve-inch ready, like the same? Oh yeah, okay. you're talking about Zonk. At Zonks, you would have got. I mean, they would have had both, man. They would have hit up people with white labels early on. Yeah, I mean, yeah, that, Damn. you know, the story, you should really speak to Harvey from Zonk because he he'll, he's got stories. But that company is literally one of the first, you know, independent promo companies in in the UK. Certainly working on dance music and hip-hop and you know i mean the white label stuff just in for context i mean actually i know because i remember talking to alfred daedalus and he mentioning coming across records like that it's the kind of stuff that you would find in record shops that would be like a white label of there would be like the 12 inch version that would have the full artwork or whatever but then you'd have the white label version the white label version would generally be the promo version and most mm -hmm. often you'd have like like alex was saying you'd have the reaction sheet whether it's in the 12 inch or like copied or like plastered onto the white cover. And it would probably be, in the UK at least, it was stickers on the center labels for like what it was. 
I used at the time when I was doing that, which is early 2000s, and I was heavy into drum and bass. It was like go to these shops like Music and Vinyl Exchange on a certain day of the week, which was the day after the promos would get mailed out. Mm. And all the DJs who got promos who didn't want them, they'd just go and sell them in that shop. So if you were like a fan like me, you could get the same promos that the DJs were yeah. getting. That they Obviously, it was the shit they didn't want. But the point was that kind of excitement that you talked about, Alex. I totally get that because I, I had very much a similar experience in London of like, it's kind of wild, that period of... Do you know these, what? That's these... like a, a microcosm or its own sort of, you know, the, the system of getting physical promos and being able to go to the second-hand store and trade it in. And, you know, it, it's you're getting something entirely different probably with this, with, you know, exchange that you're doing. Yeah, that was a whole, you know, ecosystem. And then someone else that someone else that isn't on the list finds the record and they get, yeah. you know, it just carries on, yeah. Yeah, yeah. There's an Out of the Closet, which is a thrift store in LA in Atwater, which is right by the Beastie Boys studio. And one time I walked in there and I'm 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 I was it's guaranteed that these are all promos from the Beastie Boys studio. This was around the era of when they had the magazine, um uh, Grand Royal. Ah, oh, fuck. Grand Royal. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah, so I, I once I just walked in and it was just a, an insane like it was like a record shop, but yeah. it was a thrift store, and I just went ape. I just I took everything like you know even if you know because you can sometimes only see the the name on the O label. There's a little scratch, mm -hmm. so I was just like, I don't know what this is, but I'm gonna take it. Yeah, so was, I love those come ups, you know. So just maybe to close the the bracket on the promo thing, that's kind of curious. It's ten years now since you've done or Young Kings and all that. Like, how do you see the, the dynamics of that whole promo thing having changed? Like, what's it, how do you look at it today? Because obviously you were already at, at a shifting period and then now we've already shifted to something else as well. Like, I don't really know, man. I know it's changed. I, I couldn't tell you what it's changed into though, in all honesty, man. Like, I would have, I was always sort of um, split a little bit. You know, I've had various sort of ideas and like little, ventures over the years and i do i do love that process of like working on brilliant music and with great artists and good labels and promoting projects and doing really creative things but it just felt like certainly for you know the kind of projects i'm interested in which would have been you know more niche or independent ones or things of that nature like it's just, just like it just kind of shrank i wouldn't you know the appreciation didn't shrink but the the industry behind it shrank. It got hijacked in a way, it got taken over, and the, a lot of the money really was lost. And the process of it, it is great now having digital things and having ease, ease of access, but the, the sort of the structure of it where you had, you know, promo companies, you know, proper graphic design department, um, you know, you could go and do like a tour to promote your record and, you know, there was just a lot of moving parts to it and everyone could get paid and there was, you know, a lot of dif differing levels of sort of creativity and input into it. And that process was really good and really healthy and, you know, it just shrunk and it became a different kind of thing. And I guess, obviously, that's just part of social media and the internet taking over and, you know, just it becoming a digital thing. I'm not that interested in just being only part of a digital thing. Yeah, it's, it's, like, it's tough. Yeah. So that, that, 
that's why I kind of stopped doing it and that's where I see it at right now I'm like I don't really know what it is or what this thing is how you go about sort of you know building a new project or promoting a lot of music when in in this climate in this environment it's difficult man yeah for sure I even think pre-covid it was already like we're everyone's just kind of out on their own in a, mm. in a sense, you know, with our, with our own outlets. It's, it's inevitable, right? And it's meant to, it's meant to change and shift and we're meant to constantly find new ways of doing things and working things. But in terms of the satisfaction I get out of doing it, because that's, you know, of utmost importance. If I'm working on something, do I really love it? Do I, do I want to do this? And you know, the thought of just sitting behind a computer all day sort of promoting a record I used to enjoy going to meetings or setting up like live recordings for radio stations and you know what I mean, having meetings with artists and launches for videos and things like that, sponsored with clothing stores and physical magazines and all this shit, you know, it was like really fun. Yeah, but the, just, that, that physical element is super important. You know, I, mm. I often think like, I don't, it, it scales to, to so many things like, I don't enjoy putting a mix of music together just in the computer. Like I don't enjoy mm -hmm. it. I can do it. It's fine, but I don't mm -hmm. enjoy it. And I was talking about this with Justin before, like, you know, I, I, what happened with, with uh, vinyl controllers, I was fine with that because it kept that thing of the, the physicality of vinyl and how vinyl is used to control music and music flows to me still transfers to the vinyl controllers ultimately it makes things quicker or whatever but ultimately that remains central and when you move to cdjs that's already shifting a little bit it's a different type of texture it's, it's all plastic it's all it's a lot more of just pushing buttons right and then now we're in, just in the controller space and so now it's like trying to recapture but at least having whatever little physical element you can get makes putting a mix of music together for me anyway so much more enjoyable than just mm putting a playlist together or whatever, do you know what I mean? And I, I kind of hear the same thing that you're talking about where it's like moving in a purely digital space can be difficult when you when you were used to the physical mm -hmm. being integral to so much of what we did creatively. Also playing vinyl, it feels risky. There's a huge risk. There's, you know, it's shit can really go back left, you know. Yeah. Once you've let go of the record, you've let go you've you've dove you've dove off the cliff and like you know i don't feel so when i play with cdjs i don't feel like it, you know i can trigger something and be like nah i just hit that button again it comes right back to the beginning like so i don't have even, that you can even pull your usb out and it will go into a loop <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> yeah. no so there's the risk you just like you, you're a little bit more relaxed but vinyl you know i'm not i'm not a purist at all like i'm Thank yeah. I just bought. I just. I just bought a a, a, a controller because I haven't had turntables in ten years. So, right now, having the DDJ four hundred that Alex told me about, I'm so yeah. happy. Like I, I, I laughed at this kind of shit uh, ten years ago. I would have been like, controller, that, that's weak. But now that I'm desperate and I just any way that I can record and put two records together, it's it's yeah. amazing. But there's still yeah. a lot, there's still a lot of physicality to that particular way of doing it. That that's a controller and stuff you know what i mean and we was i mean it's a different it's a different feel though i don't feel comfortable like i i still feel the same way with the vinyl with the, with the controller as vinyl where yeah. I, when i i feel a little because the feel is different than what i'm used to so i don't feel it as comfortable I, i'll yeah. get there you know, um, you know what i'm talking about you don't even have to 
and this is a habit to get out of, of sort of not using the laptop as or the, the pad to control to what control to use the functions on the actual controller so you're still physically doing it on the controller and it's quite nice when you're really in a mode where you don't have to interact with the laptop particularly you know what i mean I think if I prepared, if I pre- prepared more, because I'm kind of just grabbing like whatever twenty records, and just kind of you know uh, bullshitting sets. I'm just practicing. So, but um, if I can, if I know that the next one or two, I could just click one and down. And I can trust it. I can use these. Then I'll then I'll do that. But I don't feel, you know, that's that still seems risky to me right now. Hi. This podcast is a labor of love for both Kutma and I. It's prepared, recorded, and produced using our own limited time and resources and with help from friends. If you like what you hear and enjoy these weekly conversations, please consider donating to help us continue. We want the show to be freely available, and while we may look to something like Patreon in the future, for now, donations are the easiest way to support us. You can find a PayPal link in the show notes. Thank you for listening. And now back to our conversation with Alex now. I guess the other important thing is your label, uh, Eglo. Tell us the story, the the short story of how it started. The story's out there, and I'm sure if people listen to this, they've probably got some idea, maybe, of, of, about the label. So I'd not just say that it's it's been 10 years, man. We've been doing it 10 years. You know, started out, sort of foundation of it, myself, Floating Points, Fatima, Funkin' Even, uh, Keishin, Graphic Design. How did you meet every like? Because I met you as a crew. The you know short what I mean? story, so how, really, yeah. is, is plastic. You know what I mean? Plastic ah, is okay. the story of it. Yeah, I mean that plays just as important part in all of this. Is plastic people. Mm-hmm. But yeah, I mean the label kind of came almost out of plastic people, and I think to a degree, for me, you know. Deep down, it almost is a reflection of my musical experience in that place in terms of the feeling and the, the emotion of it and the, the variation and the different styles. Definitely comes a lot of my time at Plastic People. Yeah, I think, again, I'm sure some people will have an idea of it, some people might not, but Plastic People, in that sort of... Throughout the 2000s and up until the beginning of the end, so to speak, which is when they first shut down and then reopened, which is what, like early 2010s-ish. Mm-hmm. Um, really super important to so many things that came out of London, from Grime to Dubstep to what you did with Eglo. So many, so many strands of London music passed through mm-hmm. that club. Do you remember the first time you went there? Yeah. The, I, can't, I couldn't tell you like who was playing that night or anything like that, but basically, so when I was working at Zonks, uh, another guy that used to work there um, used to MC for Plastician as Nomad, right? Oh, <laughs> yeah. I think you may have told me this, and I forgot. That's funny. Yeah, so that was who was first. Like, ah, oh, you know, I hadn't been to Plastic. I don't, I don't, th- I don't think I had. I, th- I think that was the first time I went down. Was was him saying, "I, oh, you know, come down," because we was already listening to stuff in the office. Do you know what I mean? We was listening to whatever, Koki or Scream or whoever was playing at that time just you know radio sets and mixtapes and stuff like that rinse fm rips yeah rinse rips and stuff we were listening to that in the office and then obviously like i said he was doing like sets with plastician and stuff so i went there 
And then I think I was there every week since that day for probably like five or six years. Would you mind, you told me that story for the book and it's actually one of the, sto- one of the main stories around you that made it into the book, but I was telling Justin about it and he didn't know. So could you tell the story of that night when you went down to plastic and it was like uh, the black pocket night? You know the one I mean? Oh, wow. Because I you think know, not a lot of people know about that, and that is, I think, super important in the variety of work. I get a little bit muddled up as well, because sometimes, was there two Black Pocket Nights? There was, but the one that you referred to is the one where Hodmo was like his first, I think it was his first DJ set in London. Yeah. There was one before it, I think. There was, I mean, I know Steve used to do other nights there, but I don't think it was called the Black Pocket Nights. No. In terms of the Black Pocket Nights, I'm not sure if there was one or two, but yeah, there was definitely that night. And I think, I don't know if I even turned random that night. Did I go random? Because I can't remember. I mean, I knew who Hudson Mowell was. I was definitely listening to Hudson Mowell. And obviously Steve and Deebridge, I, I was aware of. I'm not sure if I even went down there knowing particularly that that was on them. But getting in there, and then that was the, was that the first time I heard Fatima? If not one of the first times I heard Fatima get on the mic. Yeah, she got on the mic, um, and everyone was in there. You know, Charlie Dart was there, Goldie was in there, and that was definitely just, I don't know, that was magic, in it? That You could just feel it in the wow. air, man. The atmosphere in that place that night was, was really special. There's, there's some video footage of it. It's on YouTube. <laughs> it's also that link right so you got Deebridge who is German based at that point he's really that's what he's known for you got his half brother Steve Spacek who's soul like who's but he's Black Pocket is this project and it's beats and then you have like Hudmo it's his first London DJ set you've Goldie in the audience you've Charlie Duck Alex Fatima like it's wild and it all came through together through like MySpace messages and people being like come down mm-hmm. to plastic it's not like it was advertised or anything do you know what I mean so did, have you spoke to anybody else about that night yeah most most of the memories correlate and is that what happened? Was it a MySpace message? That part it... of the story is from what you told me. I, think, I can't remember how I even found out about it. Or... Dom from, because Dom from Lucky Me was there as well, right? Yeah, I'm sure he was. It would be with Ross, right? Yeah, Dom told me his memory of it. And then obviously that footage that I found, which is how I first found out about it. And then Charlie, I think, told me as well. Was this pre-Hudson Heaters? This is around that time. It's at the time. Yeah. That's crazy because the Plastic People uh, sound system, because Hudmo's music is quite, there's a lot of highs, like it's really high heavy. Um, and the system there is very bass heavy. I mean, I know there's a lot of bass in his music, great. but I'm thinking. It, thi- it sounded great in there, I can tell you that. I, I re- Oh man, I would love to have been there for that. That's crazy. It, did, it, wasn't, it wasn't like harsh or... Because I remember the first time I played Plastic, I think I played the wrong stuff because I didn't understand the system. I mean, I figured it out probably halfway through my set, yeah. but I was, 
plastic was yeah. on the hardest places to play at. It was just like to get to get into a comfort zone there. It was intimidating, man. It was intimidating. Mm-hmm. The mixer was fucking massive. The case it was in used to wobble from side to side. You got all these people just staring at you in the front row. Oh, the and sound, they're close. Yeah. The sound is vibrating. You see, you can't even really see anything or read anything clearly. Your drinks are vibrating off the side. There's a little space like that much to put some records. Like, it took a while, man. It took me a while to settle into before I felt comfortable playing in there because I was definitely intimidated. Do you remember your first time you played there? I can't say I remember the first time, but I like I remember the first time when I like I caught the Holy Ghost playing in there. Do you know what I mean? I think it might have been a nonsense night, you know. I think it might it might have been nonsense, but I know what I was playing. I was playing um I was playing some garage in there, and it was uh, ordinary people on social circles. <laughs> just as like the two records mixed together and it like came up it was just like I kind of was like whoa like a roller coaster going over a bridge feeling and it, it was just one of them sort of connect you know there's connectivity amongst everything that was going on in the room at that moment it was really special so yeah I don't know if that was the first time I played but again like saying how intimidating it was it was the first time when I was like oh wow I want to I want to play here all the time <laughs> yes it's it- it's a special room. Yeah, it was such a special... There's always a vibe in there. Yeah, man. R.I.P. Plastic People. I miss that shit so much. I was in London at the time um, when it did when it did shut down. And I yeah. felt, even though I've only played there a couple times, um, I felt like a part of the city was dying tremendously, mm-hmm. you know. Um, and it was one... Not that I would have stayed if it stayed open, but it was one of those things when I thought about leaving London... Um, that made me think, yeah, yeah, you know, this place is changing and maybe it's not for me anymore. Do you feel that when you walk around there and see that it, what it became now, what is it now, like a wine shop or something? A cocktail bar or something, man. It's just yeah, a basement. Some shit. Like a cocktail bar. I definitely feel that and I feel what you're saying. And every, I think everyone felt it at the time, even during like the last two years of plastic, it was kind of like, huh? And it was so bizarre because it really felt like things were kind of, well, I guess that was the plateau in it. It really felt like things was, you know, really coming up. And it was the time that I was coming up, certainly in terms of like, you know, doing the label and having the radio show and playing out. And while simultaneously, it kind of felt like a lot of shit was just dying, man. Really weird. Like, you know, people make a big deal about like the clubbing scene now as if it's some kind of, I know it's just more present and visual than ever. If you look at, you know, if you turn on the TV or look in a magazine or whatever, a documentary, there's a lot about it out there. But actually compared to, you know, I used to go out on a weekend and there was like, in the UK, most major cities or towns, there was just like nightclubs everywhere, man. And London, when I first moved to London, it was just, you could stay out Monday to Sunday, do you know what I mean? Literally didn't have to go home. Everywhere was like, Mm-hmm. The end, cross, turn mills, herbal. Three, 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 
Brick Lane, like Mass and Brixton. Plenty of little parties as well, nice little underground parties, warehouse spots and stuff. Little bars that would be open to like two o'clock, but would have like dope little like local mm -hmm. DJs doing parties. There was that one bar in South London that was kind of attached to the whole dubstep crime thing popping up. I forget the name. Oh, the Dogstar. Dogstar, yeah. yeah. Um, yeah, I mean, I got the same impression doing when I was doing my research on LA and when I was in LA and, and all that. Like, I think a lot of big cities had that for a while, and it definitely feels like a big side effect of, of what we've been going through as, as a society is this mm -hmm. shrinking of, of not only public spaces, but shrinking of private spaces that were important for community building, whether we're talking about record shops, nightclubs social mm -hmm. centers right like places where people can go and be together and be united around ideas of culture and ideas of identity like it's fucked up yeah for real um i was even reading yesterday about berlin and how like the the whole club scene there is just being gutted through covid like it's wild Justin, you work with you do some stuff for Gretchen, right? Yes, yes. Are they holding up? Yeah, uh, they're doing live streaming. Um, I don't know how it's working. I think they're one of the few. I think Gretchen is one of the few clubs that didn't get funding from the government. Um, I'm not sure why, but and it's a huge space that only support. Really, in Berlin, they're the only one that supports anything that I sort of do or into. Uh, so it's you know. A shame to see what's what I mean, not a shame to see, uh, just to see what will happen in such a huge space, you know. Yeah, I mean, uh, to me, they they were definitely sort of like one of the alternative places for, for club culture and for music in Berlin. And mm -hmm. to know that these places might not make it out of something like this because of so many reasons, which are beyond the scope for of, some reason, of I think they will, though. I think they will, though. I think the importance of their them being here is 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 noted. I, I keep wondering if maybe what happens on the other side of this is that these things that we're talking about that we experience, like plastic and the, these culture things, will start popping up again on on I guess what you would call the margins, right? So they won't happen in London, and they won't happen in Berlin, and they won't happen in LA and New York, but they'll happen elsewhere which right now seems like is not the center of all these things and i think that that gives me some hope and i hope that that's it the is, case i've got to say you know it is that already right. during that time when a lot of stuff was shutting down in london i was you know traveling around doing gigs up and down the country around europe and definitely the sort of the more smaller towns and cities all around europe kind of had the best spots going on and the best you know the best sort of, um, I don't know what word I'm looking for, but yeah, there's definitely life outside of London for, for, for sure. Do you know what I mean? There's lots of cool stuff happening all around the world. Yeah, I think that's where it would be interesting to see. Like, again, you know, like your experience, Alex, when you were in Wolverhampton, that was at a time when that city started dying. But I think maybe mm. we might start to see the reverse, where instead of being attracted to the big city like we used to be back then, people in the small cities will realize that there's fucking nothing in the big cities because they've been gutted by the, the, the system that we're in. And so they're like, well, I can do stuff here and that might work. Do you know what I mean? I mean, look at somewhere like Amsterdam over the last sort of 10 years, do you know what I mean? Like, it's just, 
it's it's crazy the sort of the music culture there has just sort of been on this constant trajectory i think has had like a lot of support right they have a lot of support from government and councils and but then that's been taken away and so now they're like it's going back down and i think it's the same thing that you're really? seeing in berlin yeah yeah the you know berlin and amsterdam were arguably like the two cities that a lot of people would point to as good examples but i think when you actually look at it on paper right now they're both almost just as bad as london or at, at the very least on their way to being as bad as london it definitely feels like you know the the tory government has had you know zero interest in any type of support or investment in the arts and all the you know over the last 10 15 years the way i've just seen everything all the sort of community centers and kids activity playgrounds and all that kind of stuff and just yeah it's really bad man there's a serious lack of funding and support for you know just the arts and culture and not even just the arts and culture just people man human beings just doing regular human being shit they need to interact and do community things and you know have the opportunity to be creative in safe spaces it's, it's weird i don't get it i don't get like it's 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 provided so much of what london is and so much tourism and tax revenue i don't understand why it's really not it's the same everywhere in my experience because I saw it in LA. Like you know, LA is a democratic city in a supposedly democratic state or whatever, and blah blah. But like, it's the same shit. It's like there's no, and I see it here. Like I'm in Italy right now. I don't even you know. Obviously, the the political leaning of whoever's in power definitely has an influence. But I think in general, it's that sort of neoliberal squeezing of everything, turning everything into some sort of like business competition. It's like can you compete with Amazon and Google type thing? Do you know what I mean? It's like, can you provide something that's going to make a shit like Club Gretchen? You know, it's like, that's not a place where you're going to go and spend a shit ton of money on drinks. You're going to go there because you want to catch a vibe. Right. But really the system's only interested in places that can sell you 15 drinks a night and you're going to get wasted and then you're going to get a cab. And, do you know what I mean? Like that's really mm -hmm. what the system has been pushing mm -hmm. for for the last 20 years. And I think we caught that wave. It, our generation was lucky. We had that wave where like there were still these spaces. But like you said, you were talking about your feeling of, you know, doing things physically versus digitally. I like I see that in that in that way, too. Do you know what I mean? I feel really like really lucky and really fortunate and grateful to experience the things in the way that I have. And even then, I feel like I caught the tail end of something. I do feel like, wow, you know. Not that I want to go back in time and live a different life, but I'm like, wow, some people, you know, if you was at Woodstock or some shit like that, you know what I mean? I'm sure there's not a lot I can really say to you in terms of, oh, there was this thing called plastic people, do you know what I mean? Like, in terms of experiencing <laughs> cultural events or whatever, but, you know, that was the most important thing in, in my life in terms of, you know, being in a, a musical space and environment. And I'm so grateful I got to go through that because I don't know what there is right now like that. I mean, this world, like, like the MySpace era is 15 years ago. Like, that trips me out when I think about it. And so, like, it's as far from today as, like, something like the kind of golden era of American hip-hop was from the MySpace era when that was mm. happening. Do you know what I mean? Like, when you start to look at it like that, it's crazy. Like, dubstep and grime and all that, that's, like, 20 years old. We're getting to, like, 
two decades of that stuff existing as ideas, as music. I'm, again, really grateful I got to see a lot of that, like, firsthand in its growth. For sure. Yeah, man. And I think, you know, it's interesting then to see how these things sort of, like, permeate what's happening today. Like, It's just this feeling of sort of, you know, monetizing everything and that being the only worth in doing something and I'm really glad I'm at this place I'm at right now because I can kind of step back a little bit. Um, So you were saying Eglo just turned 10. How? um, I guess it was what? I was going to say that was like last year, right? That was last. Because Eglo is 20, is it 2010? I I was going to say actually the first. It would at some point be 12 years this year. I was going to say because it was, wasn't it? Oh, that seven inch, the Floating point seven inch is the first record, right? Yeah. Radio. We're human beings. Human beings. I never try. Never try. I'll wait for you. I'll wait for you. I'll wait for you. together before doing, doing stuff and doing some parties and stuff. Did you meet Flowing Points as a producer or as a DJ? Well, he didn't really start DJing until a, long, a couple of years after it really started making, produced, oh, releasing. Okay. So yeah, that's um, five years, man. Wow. That's about that. Mm-hmm. I mean, you guys have done, I guess in a way, like, to me, Eglo is, as a label represents the it represents like the spirit of a dj in the sense that you know you're you've not been bound by genre or style as some labels can be is that a fair assumption that like it's yeah. reflecting that eclecticism of of being a dj definitely wouldn't want to get stuck in any kind of uh, specific label or genre that's never been that's never been a thing you know of mine anyway to be stuck or or subscribe to one particular thing you know what I mean and I will say that about now about these you know current times is that everything's just a mishmash and mix up and that you don't really have that kind of tribalism in a lot of things now which sometimes that's good sometimes that's bad you know but yeah the label always definitely anything goes as long as it's just got that feeling and I couldn't tell you what that feeling is <laughs> But you know it when you hear it. How much of um, how much of what you you have done with the label over the years has been sort of like under your direct control versus, I guess, in the early days, maybe working with Sam and having input from other people that help make those decisions. Um, I mean, I guess I've always been putting a lot of work in from from the drop. Really, Sam, you know, Sam was doing his thing and has been consistently doing his thing. For, since we put out that first record so outside of those floating points releases i was doing it a lot so it's always been a very personal more like a personal thing 
yeah, it's it's personal, but at the same time, you know, it, it's a separate thing. It took it took on a life of its own, and I've tried to sort of um, cultivate that thing that it is. You know what I mean? It's what's them diagrams when the circles go over each other? You know, Venn like, Venn diagram. Yeah, it's like I'm half in. You know what I mean? Sure. The, the rest the rest is just egg load by itself. Yeah, it's it's definitely got its own personality. I was just going to ask, um, do you think of a deep when you hear records that you want to release on Eglo, do you think dance floor or music in general? No. Yeah, anything in music in general. I think okay. we when we started, a lot of that stuff was kind of like DJ friendly because that's probably where that particular group of people, Sam, myself, Fatima, like we said, we kind of came from plastic people. So a lot of it was made for the purpose of playing in plastic people. But then once, you know, two or three years in, it's definitely kind of space for anything, any kind of experimentation or function, you know what I mean? Did you have a long-time goal? Like, we're going to be around for 30 years. This is what we're going to be, you know, doing forever. Or did you each release slowly? Just No, and then- I definitely got to a point, I think maybe seven, eight years. And then I was like, okay, I've got, you know, I'm this far in now. We're definitely getting to 10. And then that was, that was a thing, you know what I mean? I'm like, we're right. definitely going to get to 10. So I feel really proud about that, actually, and really happy that, wow, I've run a record label for over 10 years. That's pretty mad. And throughout those 10 years, you know, I would say some of that music it had, a, it had a lot of substance and it made an impact and, you know, it's going to be around for a long time and I'm, I'm really happy about that. How do you balance... Um... The label being a label manager and a label owner and sometimes being a manager of the artist and you know how how, how is how is it to do that thankfully i don't do that anymore basically because uh, yeah so again for context I, I did manage for Tima for about five years i was managing sound flighting points for a year or two when we first met and i've done little bits of the management for other people as well but that is stress when you manage somebody you're really all in with that person and trying to juggle the responsibilities and do other things is really difficult so yeah as much as um i do i do enjoy the process of working with someone and and, and building and you know having projects and goals and it's that's a that's a real buzz you know when you execute those things and you know you see an artist go on the road and you stood there watching the show go, oh wow this is the project we did this is great but wow you need you need to go on holiday after that shit you know what i mean so, right right it's a long journey it's a long journey so i'm not i'm i'm not doing any management work anymore is there anything uh, that you've received as a promo like someone wanted to release records with you but you didn't, and then you heard it later, and it was like, "Ah, oh, fuck! I should have released that." There, there's projects that I wouldn't say that I turned down, but there's projects that almost came out through Eglo, and then for whatever reason didn't. And I'm kind of like, "Oh man, I, I'm I'm really I'm really good at that you know I didn't sort of go the extra yards to make sure that happened." Because I will say that mm-hmm. is that because you know of, of juggling multiple things and having to you know spend time, delegate time. I'm not always like the most persistent or on somebody's case about doing something. I've always been pretty casual about it. Oh, you want to do it? Cool. Let's do it. You know what I mean? And 
yeah. So there's a couple. I'm not being in the manager position. You have to be a little. You have to be a little pushy, you know. Absolutely. I mean, even from the label position, I've definitely had to kind of go outside of you know friendly conversation with with people. Do you know what I mean? You've got to sort of. Yeah, it can be. It can be awkward times, man. But it's a tough line to walk sometimes. That yeah, trying to create an. an inclusive thing like we were talking about where it's community based and there's friendships involved, but then there's also, it becomes to, there is business and business is business. Yeah. Not even, and there's and a final it's, call. It's just business because the way that I'm into things, I, want, I don't want to say that I want to have, um, uh, you know, I don't know. I'm not trying to, I don't know how to express this. You know what? Every project and every person works differently, and so some things you can kind of really be hands off about, and you know, don't require a lot of sort of thought or time because it just is what it is, and it work. And then some things require a hell of a lot of time and energy, and a hell of a lot of creative input. Right. Uh, some people need some direction. Some people don't. Um. But yeah, so it's it's a fun process. But it can also be. How does it work? Do you get a batch of music and you pick and sequence, or do you agree to release a record and then turn uh, release what is given? Again, both. So, say like someone like Funky Neven, right? He would always come with this is the artwork I want. I've got these three songs. I want to put them out. Um, I'd love to do a video. This is the idea I've got. Cool hands off, right, let's do it. All you got to do is set it all up, set the manufacturing up, get the, you know, pay the director and all these types of things and you're good to go. And then there's other projects. Say like with the Digo and Kaidi EPs we did, right? I actually did some some promo for Digo uh, and then in return, you know, just got into sort of conversation. I was like, oh, that'd be great if you could do some stuff for the, the label. I think we've been around for like five years. And he had like, you know, a bag of demos, just some rough ideas. And it, that's like, okay, can we pick that one, pick that one? So he then puts an EP together around those ideas. And then there's a lot of back and forth. And then you're like, okay, how's about we take that one off? And, you know, you come to a place where you're like, okay, this is something, you know, that's a, a sum of multiple parts. Now it's just not one person's kind of direction or idea. Then I'm like, okay, Sassy J would be a great person for the artwork. So then I'm, I pull that person in. And then, you know, you get to see a project through with a little bit of your own vision and direction of how you how, how you view the art, how you view the sequence, and how you think it should be visually represented. Mm. And that's really easy when the, when the artist is just like, yeah, cool, let's do it. That sounds good. Let's good to go. Other people, you know, there's a lot of resistance to input and ideas. So it's, it's yeah. a bit of both. Every situation is completely different different no that makes that makes a lot of sense and i think in that space that you operate in that so many of, of us of us have operated in i think that's a similar experience of like you, you learn to you have to adapt sometimes like it's funny when it's not funny but it's interesting when you mentioned funk and even i think to me that speaks of of somebody who's a very clear idea of what that craving what their creativity is and how it should be presented. And there are people that are like that. And then there are people who are very creative but don't have, they're not able to make that mental leap to how should I present that creativity? Do you know what I mean? Yeah. 
or they do it in a totally different way. And that's where having a label, somebody like yourself who is on the side and can say, well, I, I can channel that. I can help to mold that and make sense of it. Do you know what I mean? A good example of that is actually the project we just did, one of the most recent ones, uh, the Natalie Slade album, which is produced by Simon from Hiatus Currency. So I was, you know, speaking to them, it'd be really nice because it's kind of really sort of traditional soul and R&B music. I was like, it'd be really nice to do a sort of diverse selection of remixes for this just to give, you know, the, the songs a fresh perspective. And um, they were like, okay, cool. And I was like, who, who are you guys interested in? They're like, you know, whatever you want to do. I was like, what? I can just commission anyone? Yeah, commission who you want. Can I get the parts? Yeah, cool, cool. All right, there you go. There's the parts. So then I'm like, okay, this song will be good for this person. You know, got uh, DJ Tay. Um, who else we've got on there? We've got Daniel Maunick, um, Broken Holloway, you know, re a recent sort of two step garage producer I've been listening to a lot. Seasons change and we move on. Shed our jackets and buttons. All the flowers and buttons up. Move houses, back our things into two parts. Find the things that we thought we lost. Lose the things that we'd rather not. In the night of bed, now I know it's in time to leave. Was alone before I met you. What this is, it ain't nothing new. I've seen all of this every day with these changes. And that was just like, you know, really sweet, nice, enjoyable process because then you get to really have your own sort of choices and personal take on what, what you think should be presented. And then the guys hear it and see it. They're all working. Yeah, cool. This is great. And then some people be like, can we do some remixes? No. <laughs> you know what I mean? Or they, so, want, they want specific people to do it and maybe it doesn't vibe with like what you want the label to represent. I'm cool with both those decisions. I don't have a problem. I'm just like, what? what is this project? How do we make this project work? How, what's our relationship? That makes a lot of sense. And I'm glad you mentioned that because I kind of, it, as I'm sure you know, you know, there's so many conversations today about the the relevance slash importance of things like labels, things like music journalists, things like the things that we've been taking for that have been taken for granted for so long are being put in question, which is we were talking to, to Jim Omuna about this and like I, I think the putting things into question is super important. But at the same time mm. I think there's often I, I get a feeling that there is a lack of understanding as to what in the case of this case, as to what a label and somebody like yourself does at the level that you're at. Because this is the thing, are we talking about levels as well? We're not talking about you're not Sony. You're not universal. You're talking about indie, indie in the traditional sense of indie, mm -hmm. you know. And I think I get the impression when I watch or read or hear a lot of conversations that put these things into question. How much people really understand? And what, I would say, what happens. Not, not a label or a, a thing that's like been particularly in vogue or of the moment. We wasn't like riding a wave of any particular style or genre. Um, and that's another thing while I'm talking about, like, you know, w once it got to 10 years, I was really happy because I was like, wow, we've been around for 10 years and it's not like we came in off the back of any particular one thing, you know what I mean? And that's that's really been something, yeah, I was, I was happy about. Yeah, you emerged, like you said, I think you emerged from plastic and you emerged from that moment that we've talked about, you know, the kind of MySpace beat scene moment, but you 
were very quickly able to to make it clear that that this wasn't about just that that this was about what that represents and I think to me like the best things that have come out of that of that era which is the era that brought all of us together the re the reason why we're here today is because of that era is the best the, the best things that come out of that era have that mentality like Shafiq to talk about somebody else who you've released on the label Shafiq Hussein you know that to me he he embodies that too it's about an op, you know it's about an open-mindedness and a willingness to be to to see kind of beyond limitations and to understand this this idea like this this it's a culture and it's a culture that isn't just a hip hop culture or just a house or just a techno, but it's a culture that it really revolves around all of these things. You don't have to come from a certain time, but definitely, you know, a lot of us who came up whatever during eighties, nineties, there's a certain integrity to what you do that, you know, numbers don't reflect shit. You know what I mean? Like it's, it's about, the, the creative, um, yeah, just integrity of what, of what you're doing. And yeah, someone like Shafiq embodies that 100%, you know, just making, you can't do anything but make dope music. There's no, you, like, some people just can't fake it, you know what I mean? Some people could easily be like, okay, I'm a sort of musical genius, so therefore I could just make all of this commercial music and work with XYZ artists because I've got access to them. But some people are like, but that's not me, man. That's not what I'm going to do. I'm going to do this, you know, represent this musical journey and DNA that that I have. And it's it's tough out there now. Do you know what I mean? To be able to to do things that way because everything's so functional and formal and sort of commodified. But yeah, I definitely appreciate those people and. To some degree, I'm one of those people. I was going to ask, did you ever get a remix that you didn't like? Yeah, yeah. There's, there's been songs that have been, you know, taken off of albums, music videos that never got released, remixes that never came out. There's a whole bunch of that stuff, man. Definitely. If we can talk about beats a little bit, I know we're mm -hmm. all genre, but I want to be specific to the first time you you notice production as a, something that special and, um, you know, that stood out different than your parents' crates. Uh, you know, that mm -hmm. um, early beats that maybe triggered something in you. Do you know what it is? The whole, the whole thing for me is just breakbeat culture. And that's what I am and that's what I'm a part of. So with regards to beats... Yeah, it's always just being, you know, a part of that thing of like breakbeats from from first, you know, whether it's Cool Herc or Grandmaster Flowers or whoever doubling up those two breaks, you know mm -hmm. what I mean? And all that that comes out of that from b-boying parties, warehouse parties into whether it's speeding it up and making jungle or whether it's slowing it down, making stone beats yep. and shit like that, you know what I mean? It's, it's, it's always all of it has resonated with me and the sort of associated cultures that come come with it, whether it's like Gary Jemsen or, um, you know, peeled up ravers in a field, you know what I mean? All that stuff mm -hmm. just is, for me, it's just like a trajectory of that breakbeat culture and, you know, sampling, taking old and making new from it. Definitely when I came into, like, when I was doing radio in London, 
a lot of music that was happening at that moment in time. Because that's always what I wanted to do anyway with, with that particular radio show was play and support new music because that's what wasn't being done at the time. There wasn't, you know, there was no NTS, there was no Boiler Room, there wasn't, you know, a lot of these platforms that now seem like so normal weren't around. So, you know, the blog thing was happening, MySpace was happening, and there was a lot of incredible music. So that was, you know, how a lot of, like, the Rinse CD and the music was on there. It was to sort of, it's a, it's a, it's a snapshot of a certain moment in time that, for me, is part of that breakbeat culture. I'm glad you mentioned that Rin CD. So the the first interview we did for this was with Jim on Munich, and actually that Rin CD has has a two tall track, which yeah. is the bridge between the hip hop and the more up tempo moments because it ends in it's like with Kashmir is on it, if I remember correctly. Yeah, Kashmir's on there. And then it ends and it switches into like a dubby rhythm that then starts to speed up. Mm-hmm. And that was actually, if you listen to that, you can totally see how the Om Unit thing, like it sounds like there's a two-tall beat and then there's what becomes the Om Unit beat. Walking on the floating river, flying alligators, snapping jaws like a scissor. So now you know the deal, get real and let the jokes die. And show respects to the most high in my mind. You need to... The most high is contained within everything, from the smallest photon to the largest planet and far beyond. Be aware and respectful of all things. Feel it from the inner shockwave to the most subtle vibration. You're too tall, let's take them out of here, man. There's a lot of stuff on that CD, on that mixtape, that felt like, you know, a catalyst in something. There was, like, the Harmonic 313 stuff that then, you know, Africa High Tech coming out of that, which was a really big thing for me as well, like, musically, Steve Space Tech with Mark Pritchard. Uh, like you say, Om Unit transitioned, so Tootle transitioning to his Om Unit stuff. Then there was, like, um, the Digital Soundboy remix of Benger and Koki Knight which was like taking some of that sort of sort of dubstep stuff that was then mutating into or whatever you want to call it, you know, just different styles in this, again, this breakbeat trajectory, you know what I mean, dance music and hip-hop and stuff. So, yeah, it was just, for me, it was like a snapshot and actually a bookend because a lot of that music was the music that I've been playing on radio for like the two or three years prior to that. So it felt like a good opportunity to like collect it all, put it on, you know, in one mix, and then kind of be like, th- then I sort of felt like, okay, that's the, the bookend to that moment, you know what I mean? It was the first non-dance, purely dance, that thing that Rince did, right? Yeah, I think so, yeah. Yeah, I was going to ask, because uh, sometimes I listen to old mixes of mine, and I'm like, yeah, that was just the new shit of that time. And then later <laughs> when I listen, I'm like, ah, sometimes it doesn't stand up. Um, mm-hmm. How do you separate that? Like, because you want to play the new shit, but do you think about, ah, this isn't forever or this isn't something no, that's going to be I classic? Def- I definitely think about it. And when I made that CD, I was thinking about this, these tracks. Because it was a big deal for me at the time as well. I was like, wow, you know, Rinse was a really important platform. Mm-hmm. The only radio, well, not the only, but the main radio station for underground music in London. And 
really this show that I had on there was the only show, certainly on it, Pirate Radio like that. You had Benji playing stuff and Joel playing stuff, but I think I was going to a little bit of a niche, particular pocket with what I was doing on there. And yeah, I wanted to make sure anything that was on that, that mixtape was like around forever. And I, I actually am happy, man. I've, it's a scary thing to do and I can listen back to it now and be like, you know what, I really I really like that mix, man. It's it holds up, for sure, yeah. man. You did, you did the job on that. Before I forget, did you play on Itch? I've never played on Itch. I never played on Itch. I used to listen to Itch all the time. I think it was because we were talking about, Justin was saying that uh, Chris Crispy Cuts was with you. Chris was on Itch, right? Yeah, yeah, I think Chris did some shows on Itch for sure. I used to hear Itch when I first, like, you know, we'd come to uh, London sometimes, driving up for like a graffiti jam or something for Wolverhampton. And then we, could we were like, oh, we can tune into Itch when we're in London, you know what I mean? That's when I used to listen to Itch. For context, I'm just, uh, Itch FM was like, Turn of the turn of the two thousands kind of pirate, but it was like a hip hop pirate, which was kind of a rare thing in London because so many other pirates were, like you were saying, baby culture. So it was mostly mostly UK rap, mostly UK, but a lot of American rappers. Well. Yeah, but so in London, it was the the pirates were primarily breakbeat culture. Then you'd have so many others that were all types of music, but then Itch was like the hip hop the hip hop radio station, and actually Alex Chase. Yeah. who ended up doing uh, One Handed and who was working at Stones for was a DJ on HFM. Mm -hmm. um, anyways, sorry. Just you talking about Rinse's importance kind of reminded me that by that point, by the time you did Rinse, it's true that there was... Rinse had very much become emblematic, I think, of what pirate could be in London, especially yeah. at that point in time. Like, yeah, it was, it was definitely the sort of torchbearer in that moment. And I was I was really amazed that I ended up being on there playing the music that I was playing. And that was pretty cool. How do you prepare your sets these days? Because physical promo isn't really that prevalent anymore. So digging now is... Um... Digging, man. I mean, to be fair, when I started on radio, I, that's how I was getting music, was digitally. But it, was more, it wasn't so much... Um, you know, it was illegal downloads and blogs and stuff. That was like how you got new music at the time. Right and hand to hand you know what I mean a lot of those people I was playing were people that was around whether it was like Bullion Paul White Floating Points you know whoever was on there it was a lot of these were people I was seeing that you know on the daily sort of uh, around about town and Souls of the Universe um sorry Sounds of the Universe um uh, Phonica and hanging out at like Deal Real and places like that yes shout out Deal Real yeah you know, see a lot of producers. People, was a, you spoke to someone, there was a producer, they'll give you a CD. You know what I mean? It wasn't really a thing. Uh, it, actually, this is crazy when I think about it now. I, I'm, my NTS show is bi-weekly. And I really have to sit down and think about it now. Okay, let me pull out some tunes. I need to put some cohesive idea together for this radio show. Whether that's just new music or whether there's like a theme for the show or whatever it is. When I used to do rinse weekly for like nearly 10 years i never prepared none of that shit i never thought about it i just used to turn right. up with loads of music and i don't even know like looking back like how i even managed to sort of get gather so much new music without really thinking about it i wasn't so surprised by the amount that you gathered just more so how to present it 
Um, I guess at the time, I was just happy to play it, just like throw it all together and cut it up, and I was happy to just kind of play it. I don't think I really put that much pressure on myself as I do now. You know what I mean? I think I was more just in the moment, having fun with it. Probably think things through a bit more now. You have to, because there's too much, like, everything's recorded, everything's forever, everything's, you know, like, uploaded. Whereas mm-hmm. then, I was just doing sh- those shows weren't recorded. Are they, they're not archived either, right? A lot of them aren't archived now. No. no, the only traces Crazy. left of of that era are like maybe some some blog posts and stuff that might have had a track list. Yeah, the the later ones are like from I don't know from like 2013 or something. Then it's on like rinse went to they went legal and then they had um, was it Sound SoundCloud or I think SoundCloud they used to host their shows. But all the early shit with a lot of in, like Mark Pritchard or. Hudson Mowalk or the Rusty. MySpace era shit. Yeah, those those old shows. Uh, there's I don't have recordings of. I didn't know how to record it at the time because it was on FM, and I was doing the show, so I couldn't. I was like, I can't sit at home and record it. Some people used to record them and upload them to a couple of blogs. So that's the only times I would ever really listen back to the shows in the early days. I mean, your shows used to do the round through even like the Upstep Forum and stuff because there was Bear Files for a while, and Bear Files was yeah, really yeah. where so much of Rents ended up being archived because people were so passionate about dubstep that they would record every single show. And I have a, I would need to take a look, but I have a feeling that some of your stuff, because you were adjacent to that scene and because there was that moment where beats and dubstep and grime sort of like all collided together, that, you know, your mixes and stuff would pop up on like forums that were like whatever dance music forums or whatever. I heard you say Ross G played on Rinse. Yeah, man. R.I.P. Russ came to the show about three times just to hang out when he was in London. Like he'd been there, he'd been to Rinse a bunch of times. Brick Lane Studio, correct? A couple, I think, because over the years he'd been in a few different locations. He definitely came through to a few different locations just to hang out a few times. That's amazing. I'm glad you brought up G because you that show that you booked in the pub. Oh yeah, was that was that G's first show in London? Could have been, man. I it think really it's, if not the first, it's amongst the first. What was the Brain Feeder show at um, Curtain Road before that? It might have been. Did he play the Curtain Road show? Do you know the, the, the car park thing? Yeah, I yeah. Remember. I don't remember him playing the car park show, but maybe he did. But I have a feeling that it's either the summer it. before he played it. He, did it. he was there because he was asleep on the side of the stage for a few hours. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh. Like, next to the loudest fucking monitor, and he's fast asleep. That's amazing. Sub bass lullabies. Yeah, that's that sounds like G. I mean, he either broke sound systems or he fell asleep next to sound systems. Right? He, broke, he fucking blew up the sound system that night that I booked him. Right. <laughs> and I, was, I, was, I, was saying, I was like, please, this is you know, I really need to get through to like two o'clock in the morning with this sound system. Like, just don't don't redline the mixer, please. I've seen G at Soundcheck. And the the sound dude would be quite far away. It's like, okay, it's, everything's at twelve, and G's like, yup, yup. And I look down, everything is to the right, and it's four reds. And he's like, the guy's like, I can see the reds. He's like, no, no, it's cool. And then the dude just shrugs his shoulders, like, oh fuck's sake, all right, here we go. Living in the reds. I have a feeling that you booked him the same tour that he played Glasgow 
for the lucky for Joe and them, and he also arrived and blew the system at the Ivy. I think that was the same tour. Yeah, man, everywhere, everywhere he went. On paper, it sounds great, but it's really not a cool thing at all. We were still, we still had a fucking great night there, and it was the best, the best time being able to spend so much time with him and hang out. It was, it was amazing. <laughs> Kind of.